Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Urgent and nuanced civil war, or who do we think we are, travels across the United States exploring how Americans tell their story of the Civil War. Filmed from the last year of Obama's presidency through the present, it interweaves insightful scenes and touching interviews filmed in the North and in the South, painting a uniquely crafted, multifaceted portrait of the American psyche and the deep roots of its turbulent times. That is, this is that all that and so much more. It is a terrific documentary film, could not be more prescient. Film again is called Civil War or Who Do We Think We Are? And we're joined today by the director of the film, Rachel Boynton. Rachel, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Yes, I am so honored as well to have you on. This is something that I could spend so much time. I'm going to try to avoid my impulse to dive deeply into weird little details. This, as I said, could not be more prescient. What inspired you to do this? Well, I finished my last film in 2013, and then I spent like a year and a half kind of getting it out into the world. It it was a long run. And then in 2015, I was finally ready to start a new project. And I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And I used to listen to something called The Diane Rehm Show which uh, she's a wonderful reporter out of Washington, D.C., and she used to have a two-hour long show every day. It was amazing. Um, And I listened to it religiously. And she did a show in, I believe it was July of 2015, after the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina, at a church. Uh, It was this uh, young white man came into a Black church and just killed everybody. And he um, posted pictures of himself online, with the Confederate flag. And there had been a lot of discussion after that event about why he had done what he had done and the connection between what he had done and the symbolism that he had put out there online, connecting it to the Civil War. And on this radio show, um, they were talking about how the Civil War was discussed in classrooms specifically. And they addressed educational standards in the state of Texas. Um, Apparently in 2010, uh, Texas decided to rewrite its educational standards because they thought they were too liberal. And this politically elected board of education got together and redid, read the standards. And at the time, I'm not sure this is still true, but at the time in 2015, you could still go online and watch the hearings from 2010, which I, after hearing this radio show, I did. I went online and I spent like two days watching Texas Board of Education hearings because I was sort of fascinated by what, I wanted to find this piece that they had referenced on this radio show and I found it. And it was this piece where, you know, a Democrat, they, they were discussing a standard that talked about the causes of the Civil War. And the standard read, um, the student shall understand the causes of the Civil War as sectionalism, states' rights, and slavery, in that order. And a Democrat on the board sort of raised her hand and she said, well, shouldn't we put slavery first since that was really the cause of the war? And a Republican on the board said, no, 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 slavery wasn't the cause. It was all about states' rights. The order here is correct. This is the way it should be. This is how we should teach it. 
And I had never seen, I mean, she was very vehement. She was very convicted. She had this strong belief. She was clearly offended by the assertion that slavery was the principal cause of the war. And it, it struck me, first of all, that it was a board of education that was having this conversation, but that these feelings in our country were so strong and pure, like, and, and these strongly held beliefs. And there was something just in that, in that little conversation that to me was a window into our current divisions. And I thought to myself that if I could look into that question, that question of how we tell the story of that, that I could somehow understand something deeper about why we remain so divided as a nation. You know, what's interesting about that, and you have been hearing for years and years and years about curriculum, textbooks, how important textbooks are. And Texas always seems to pop up in the conversation in terms of what their curriculum consists of, the approach that they take to especially teaching history. This has been something that's been in the zeitgeist for decades and decades. And when people talk about the manifestation of racism in the country and how does it play out and is it relevant anymore and all these things, you find these nuggets and what you've did, you found a nugget of in live fire and in action, what one little sliver of systemic racism actually looks like in real life. Yeah, it's also what miseducation looks like. I mean, I think what that moment speaks to is a long history of this particular story being purposefully mistaught in our country. It makes having this conversation very difficult for a lot of people because not only were they potentially taught the wrong story, um, their grandparents were taught the wrong story. And there's a very emotional, deep-rooted reason why they were taught the wrong story. And unless we can really talk about that reason, about why we feel the things we do, I don't really think arguing about the facts is going to do a lot of good. That this is something that you, I'm sure, heard, and I hear all the time, and I have it with my with my own father. I can't have a discussion with you if we cannot agree on what the facts are. Right. So that makes everything else kind of noise. It just becomes something of people shouting across the room at each other about things if we don't even understand or acknowledge. This is where I go. Oh, I come down on this. Our refusal to acknowledge. Race, racism or slavery, even slavery, is at such a basic level in this country. We don't even acknowledge it. Well, I think, I think we can start with a different question. First of all, in the long run, my goal is to try and think about what a real reunion might look like that fosters and promotes actual equality of citizens. So across racial lines, across gender lines, across all sorts of, you know, social class, like actually thinking about what equality would look like in this country. It's, it's, a, it's a radical question. If that is, that is my premise, yeah. that I, I, that is something that I think is worth aiming for and trying to achieve, right? That we can have a union in this country where people, a majority of people feel represented. Yeah by the country and by the story that the country is telling. And where people, we, we have a burden in America because we're so huge and we are so diverse. 
And, you know, we're, it's not as easy as it might be in like France or something where it's a, it's a lot smaller. Um, France is hard in its own ways. But I think if we take that as the goal, that we're trying ultimately to have some kind of reunion that is true, which we didn't have after the Civil War because we just completely papered over the issue of race in this country. We pretended the white people got to pretend like it wasn't an issue and they would just go about living their lives and ignore the issue of racial equality. That was sort of the compromise that was ultimately. The point is just, I do think like that has to be said, that that's, that is my point of view. That is my goal. So if you're gonna have a conversation with anybody about this, I think, you know, you have to ask each other, like, well, what is your goal? What is it that you want here? And I think we're, we're existing in a moment in this country right now where many people of black and white and all, everything, everybody else, a lot of people in this country are feeling unheard and unrepresented and like the system isn't serving them, right? There's a lot of discontent on a lot of levels. And so I think the ultimate question beyond this film is about where can we find our points of connection? David Blight, a wonderful historian who plays a very big role in the movie. I asked him um, at one point, like, how will there ever be a real reunion in this country? And he says, the only way we will ever see a real reunion is if we can find points of connection. And to me, that's the goal of this film. It's the goal. It's, it's to allow people to more clearly see the problems with the stories we've been telling ourselves and to have a little bit more empathy for all sorts of people that they might dismiss as not human yeah. and to try and find ways to bridge our divides while insisting on truth. All of it is very complicated and difficult, but that is what I'm hoping we can do. And that's what the film does. And I, again, I'm, I'm I apologize for, I, I feel like I just want to just dig into all of these different <laughs> things that I see in the film. And one last thing about Texas, and then I'll leave it alone. We'll move on. And that is. I didn't even film in Texas, but it, it did spark the movie. So. Yeah, that's why Texas is the one place you everyone, I assume everyone listening to this will know of Ju uh, Juneteenth, the, 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 the holiday that's now being considered as a federal holiday for the emancipation of the slaves in Texas. And it took a long period of time for the sla slaves to even know that the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued. And one of the reasons for that is because during that interim time, the slave owners of Texas, and I assume many others, were looking for an alliance with Mexico so that they could continue to have slaves. They didn't want to rejoin the union. They took the time, that's one of the reasons why the word never got out, was so that they could continue owning people. So I just wanna, I mean, I just, there's so much there. And I, I just I just think it's a fact of, of history that needs to be talked about. I think one thing that's exciting now is, I mean, one of the things I do in this movie is I travel all around the country, not to Texas, but to lots of other places. <laughs> and I, I film in classrooms, right? I film as people are, young people of many different ages are learning about this history. And, you know, a lot of people ask me when you start, like, did you see any really bad teachers? And I actually, when I was scouting for the film, made a point of only trying to film with really good teachers because they're more interesting and the classrooms are more interesting. <laughs> um, but 
I was very impressed with the teachers that I filmed with across the board. Yeah. I mean, they are really trying to grapple with history and the complications of history and the reality of history and the layers and nuances and the various points of view in a way that just never happened when I was in school, ever. It was all about memorizing and reading a textbook and there was a story and you had to know the facts. And that is not what it is today. So that I think is super encouraging. That is very encouraging. Well, let me just remind our listeners, we're speaking with the director of the film Civil War or Who Do We Think We Are? And that would be Rachel Boynton. And um, it is a film that will be coming out. First of all, it's been on a theatrical run through the United States, and there is a little bit more of that to come. So be looking for that. Um, would they go to, well, and then it's also going to be coming out on October 24th on MSNBC. It'll be okay. screening on October 24th at 10 p.m. Check your local listings, as they say. And it will also be available on Peacock for streaming, which is the NBC streaming platform. Right. The film unfolds in chapters. And chapter one is called The Lost Cause, which is what I believe the South or many people who with an affinity for the Confederacy would call the Civil War, the Lost Cause. There are many other names, the War of Northern, Northern Aggression, the Civil War. There is, it, it has a number of different names that people associate with it, which speaks to your point. It's the stories we tell one another about this period of time. What was your it's sort of diving into this? Where did you the first part of the film is in Chattanooga, it takes place in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Where did you dive into this? How did what was the window that you sort of said, I've got to get through that one and this will open up a whole lot of the other rest of the story? Um, well, this is a very particular kind of movie. This is a movie. Um, this, this particular style of filmmaking is not very popular right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's it's sort of something like a vestige of like the 1970s, but it's 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 the idea of going out and wit like observing things as they happen and uh, following things over time. I always knew that I wanted to tell the film in pieces in a in a lot of different locations, um, and in a certain way, you know, my previous films all followed single stories. And it was always very important that I be in that boardroom or in that militant camp or wherever I needed to be at that particular moment. With this film, in a lot of ways, it was a lot less stressful to shoot because there's so many things I could possibly film in this country in order to tell this story. There are just an infinite number of scenes that could work in this movie. So it gave me a certain kind of freedom. I could, in a certain sense, start anywhere. And I knew that I wanted to start in the South because the South wears this history on its sleeve in, in a way that the North doesn't. And I knew that I wanted to start in a place that had been really marked by the war um, and that still felt the war in an in a intimate, alive way. And my husband's family, his father's family is from Memphis, Tennessee. And through a family connection, I got access to this school called the Macaulay School for Boys, which is in Chattanooga. And it happens to be located on a Civil War battlefield site. And they happen to have a semester long class on the Civil War and Reconstruction, which is very unusual for a high school. It was a real opportunity to go in and kind of get our feet wet. And we completely overshot Chattanooga. I could, I could have made a whole movie just on what we shot in Chattanooga because I didn't really know what I was doing. But I started there. I started with that class. I massively overshot the class. Um, but it was a way for me to kind of get my bearings 
and to figure out, I realized while we were shooting there that I didn't just want to stay in the classroom. I also wanted to leave the classroom and film with people outside of the classroom who felt very strongly about the war. And so that beginning, the way this film worked was I would, we would go and we would shoot something and then I would come back and watch the material and think about the themes and then think about where I wanted to shoot next in response to what we had gotten in the previous place. I that sounds like a very smart way to go about it. You get your, yeah, just as you said, you get your bearings, you get the broad spectrum of these sort of opinions and interactions. And we see that in the film and, and among the other places that you go and important, I think was uh, Clinton, uh, Mississippi. And th this is sort of the embodiment of what you just described. I think getting, getting inside the story and, and this kind of innocuous thing of picking out markers, which are prevalent around the state of Mississippi. Go, go ahead and explain that part of the story, because I, I really, really thought that was a great That's a really, you know, as I mentioned or insinuated before, the, the film is told in episodes, right? Mm -hmm. So it kind of unfolds in, we used, we used to talk about them like bubbles when we were in the editing room. There were, I wanted every bubble to sort of have its own rhythm and fit within the whole. There was like a, there was a sort of musical rhythm that we were trying to reach with the length and the impact of each story. And there is a bubble in, in the section of the film that deals with reconstruction that's about Clinton and about a woman named uh, Missy or Melissa Jones, um, who is a, a professor there. And she has spent a very long time <laughs> um, dedicated to trying to get a marker up in Clinton, Mississippi, that acknowledges the reality of what has been called the Clinton riots, but is actually a massacre. This event in 1875, where a group of black Republicans gathered on a hill to have a political rally and a bunch of white supremacists, white Democrats came and started shooting and everybody ran. And over the course of the next several days, those white Democrats went and sought out the individuals who had been at that event and killed them in front of their families. Um, one of the horrible twists of this story is that it was for, you know, over a hundred years, mistold quite deliberately. And in, even in the newspapers, it was told that it was the black Republicans who had launched the violence, that they were the ones who were rioting, right? And um, that the white people were just responding to black aggression. Uh, this is a narrative that we're very used to now, I think in this country, you know, while I was making this film, my husband and I for, had many conversations about racism and whiteness and all sorts of things. But he, at one point, I remember he said to me, you know, as a white person living, he grew up in New York City on the Upper East Side, you were raised to be scared of the black people in Harlem, right? But he said, he realized that they should really be scared of us. <laughs> like, it's like, we're the ones who are scary. If you actually look at the reality of the story so frequently, it's, it's the white aggressor, not the black aggressor. And how ironic that the stereotype is of the black aggressor. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's the story of the Clinton riots. And Missy has tried for many years to get that marker up along with other people. And when we were filming, the marker was up. And the reality is that today, the marker has been knocked down again. Um, the marker has been knocked down multiple times. 
every time they stick it up, it gets, you know, oddly knocked down in the middle of the night by a truck or something. And they can't seem to make that marker stay. Describe where it is. I mean, the marker, it's, it's not yeah. on me. There's not it, a flashing red light that's well, pointing. Well, at they haven't exactly lit it well, um, which it is on an abandoned, like kind of this abandoned, behind this abandoned mill on the side of a railroad track at the end of a road that is not well-traveled. Um, it's quite hard to find. It's in kind of the middle of nowhere. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the point, because I mean, you have these yeah. other images in the film that show you where the other markers in Clinton are, right? Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of town squares and in well-trafficked areas. You know, th that particular marker did not have to be placed in that particular spot. It was a choice. Yeah. And I'm just thinking out loud here. I wonder how many, if any, there are there is a, a corollary to the violence visited upon the people of Clinton, so much Tulsa or so many other places around the country where a, a group of black people literally slaughtered a bunch of white people. Maybe there is, but in terms of the of the yeah, you know, I mean, in terms of how the story was told, right? Well, I'm just yeah, just any I'm just going through the the history of America. I mean, right. I'm just wondering how many stories. That as I grew up in the same environment, I'm old enough to have grown up. The Watts riots were not terribly far from my parents' house when when I was growing up, and the fear, the palpable fear that this somehow was going to spill over into the suburbs and there would be, you know, mass shootings. I remember it very clearly, and yeah. and I remember the fear that my parents felt, and yeah. I, I just so I know. I mean, I just I mean, I've lived. I'm trying, trying to exaggerate here, but I I understand it. It's a big part of the film is that theme of fear. Yeah. And fear is the reason why the story was told, white fear in particular, as one of the reasons why the story was told the way it was. I think there has been tremendous fear um, over the generations of black retribution yeah. for all the wrongs, for all the injustice, and this sort of unconscious, unacknowledged recognition of the inequities that exist and this fear that somehow the white people are gonna be punished for it, right? That the enslaved black people would rise up and, and attack the white master at the end of enslavement. The reality is this hasn't, you know, this, that hasn't been the case. The case has been white aggression and, and white, white people in this country need to, in particular, I think, need to really take a look at the reality of how we live yes. and the reality of the stories we tell ourselves about race and how we walk through the world and participate in the story of race, that the story of race was established principally by white people. Um, and, and it is very much our story. It's not, it's, it's something we have to own because it's America. It's a very American story. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could not agree more. The only incident that I know of in American North American history was the insurrection of the Haitian slaves to overthrow the French colonists. Right. And that, that doesn't get told in schools either. It does not get told told in school. And I and I do believe, and I've seen historians talk about this. One of the reasons why the Second Amendment became part of the Constitution was in fear of the slaves rebelling in the South, 
And that the sheriffs were organized. The, the whole idea of sheriffs were organized to essentially monitor slaves and escape slaves in the South. So those, that's it. That the, the, the Haitians overthrew the French colonists once in, in the history of the world that has happened. So uh, there's just so much here. I really want to let people know. I just really, there, I could spend, I could spend so much time with you today well, talking about this. This is so. One of the things that I think is great about this movie, if I do say so myself, <laughs> is that first of all, it's a very open film. It's not a film that is telling you exactly what you're supposed to think when you walk away from it. Right. And what that means is it kind of forces you to do a lot of thinking. It's a film that requires you to do some, some actual responding. Um, and the result I found is that when people see this film, they walk away from it talking, talking about it like for hours and hours and hours and asking themselves questions. And what did you think of this? And I love that about the film. I mean, I hope, I hope people, despite COVID, I hope they'll be able to see it with others yeah. and sit afterwards and talk with each other, preferably with people who aren't like them, yeah. you know, and, and have conversations about what they saw and how they feel, because that's, that's the point of this movie. Yeah, I agree. And, and you've used the word acknowledge at least a couple of times. And I think I really, I think that's the word for me. Let's acknowledge what, what you, what, we see in your film. Let's acknowledge that these things at least happen. And then we can go from there to try and figure out the, the points in which we converge, in which we have a, an interest in, in moving forward. Well, we also have to decide if we really do want equality. I mean, equality is kind of threatening. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that, I mean, for white people, white families that have managed to build something over you know, the centuries in this country. My, my family on my father's side came here. You know, I think my, my grandmother qualified for Daughters of the American Revolution or something. Like, I mean, they've been here for a long time and white people were allowed to build something over time in a way that black people were not. What does that mean? What does that mean in terms of the present? What does that mean in terms of how, if we care about equality, if it's not, if we don't want to exist in a society that's purely about competition, if we want to exist in a place where we take, where we actually take care of each other and care about our fellow citizens, what does it mean in terms of how we are going to walk through the world? And what can we as individuals do differently um, in terms of how we live our lives? Great, great way to, to close our conversation. The film is called Civil War or who do we think we are? And it is uh, all of the things we've been talking about and more. And I'm so glad you brought up that it is a film that uh, essentially allows the viewer to take in what they see and to be able to process it in the way that they see fit. And, um, and hopefully we'll have discussions, conversations with others. The film uh, is in theaters. Be looking for it. Go do a search on Civil War or who do we think we are. You can find the screenings on Facebook. There's a, we have a Facebook Thank you. And Facebook is a great place to go for, for that, with that title. And also be looking for it on October 24th on MSNBC, 10 p.m. And also Peacock. It is streaming on Peacock. Be looking for this film. Rachel Boynton, uh, thank you so much. And um, I look forward to another conversation and uh, more work from you. I appreciate it. Thank you so I much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.